Welcome to episode 171. Today, we'll learn about research-backed strategies for teaching reading to MLs. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Normally, I interview authors about their book. We go through each chapter. However, in this episode, we'll just focus on one chapter about reading. We dive deep into this topic and learn things about decoding, culturally responsive reading instruction, dual language books, vocabulary instruction, multicultural books, and what teachers should do before, during, and after reading a text with their multilingual students. Get out your pen and writing pad to note down all the principles of effective reading instruction. Consider this podcast conversation a masterclass in reading instruction. Now, on to today's podcast. It's not every day that you have three leaders on the in the field come join you from three different locations, Rhode Island, Argentina, and London. Today, we're going to have Dr. Nancy Cloud, Dr. Els Hamayan, and Dr. Fred Hennessy on the podcast to talk about their book called Literacy Instruction for English Learners, a teacher's guide to research-based practices. Dr. Cloud, Hamayan, and Genesee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Would you each start us off with sharing a very quick story of a teaching experience that has really informed your practice to this day? Uh, my uh, anecdote is not so much about teaching per se, but it's about an encounter that I witnessed between a principal of a, an immersion school, a dual language school, and one of the students. And this was a chance encounter. I happened to be talking to the principal and the student came along in the hall and the teacher took the time to introduce me to the student who was not, uh, did not speak English or French, two languages of Quebec, as a native language. And the principal took the time to indicate that the student spoke other languages and she spoke very positively about this child's language skills. And, you, and the student was just beaming. His smile went from one ear to the other. And it just reinforces the point that as the native languages, heritage languages of English learners are an integral part of who they are. And it's important to, that we reinforce their sense, positive sense of identity with those languages. Well, okay, I'll, I'll go on. <laughs> um, and my story doesn't come from instruction either. And it's, it's weird because I don't consider myself a researcher uh, because after I finished graduate school, I really wasn't involved much in, in formal research. Uh, but my significant moment comes from when I was doing research and I was getting um, language samples from third graders uh, using story retelling. And so I would tell a story to students individually um, and uh, in their second language, and then ask them to retell the story to me. Um, and so every one of those blessed children did what I asked exactly, except for this one who listened very intently to the story. And so she laughed at the right moment. She went <gasps> at the right moment. And when I asked her to tell the story back to me, she got this puzzled look on her face and she said something like, 
you want me to tell you the same story, but you already told it to me. You know the story already. And I remember thinking, you go girl, demand meaningful interactions from any kind of any interaction in your either first language, but definitely in your second language. And that kind of made me realize how important meaningfulness was in everything we do, whether it's in research, but more, even more so, I think, in instruction. So that's been kind of a guiding, uh, a mantra for me. Okay, and, and mine follows well from, uh, from both Fred and Elsie. I was a bilingual and ESL teacher in San Francisco for seven years at the middle school level. And um, uh, of course I taught kids from all over, but the kids that were in the Spanish bilingual program were from Mexico and from Central and South America predominantly. And while some did come from cities, most of my kids came from rural or uh, more remote environments. And so I, I learned so many lessons from them. I don't even know where to begin. But the one I'm going to tell is that when we would go on field trips and we would leave San Francisco and we would cross the Golden Gate Bridge and we would end up in more rural environments, the more we got out into the country, the more the kids talked. And the kids who were silent in the classroom who said very, very little. And I wondered, you know, why can't I get them to participate? <clears throat> they would get out there and I couldn't get them to shut up. It, it was like the longest day of my life to go on a field trip with them because they told so many stories. They had so much to share. They knew so much about taking care of livestock and they knew so much about life in the country. And they wanted to talk about all the people that they left behind. And it was all triggered by where we were. And what it taught me is exactly what Louise Mole has told us about funds of knowledge, that when we tap into their funds of knowledge, they have so much to say. And often it's we who are disabling them by the books that we choose, by the topics that we choose. And they look silent and they look like they don't know anything. But when we tap into what they know and when we make connections, even if it's a new topic, we have to start with what they know and work forward. So I learned a lot from my kids, but that was a big lesson because I knew where they were from, but I wasn't, I wasn't as aware as I was on field trips how important it was to tap in to everything that those kids knew. Oh, I wanted to respond to each one of your stories, but I resisted it because I didn't want this to go for too long. Uh, but the connection between all your stories is that we see the assets in students, their heritage languages, creating meaningful interactions with them, like they're ready to have meaningful interactions and their background experience, right? That's the, the main theme of our field, I think, and your three stories really capture that. Let's dive into your research and your book. Um, question, let's look for the first question. What does research tell us about learning to read in one language? There has been a, a tremendous amount of research on uh, teaching children how to read and what that makes for successful readers. And uh, in response to your question, I'm going to focus on teaching uh, reading skills to students in their native language. And primarily we're going to focus, I'm going to focus and we will focus on English as a language, either a first language or a second language, because that's the focus of the book. Um, and that's what I'm most familiar with. Um, the goal, it's clear that the goal of uh, teaching reading to students is so that students will be able to read text, either school-based text or texts outside school, fluently and accurately. And being able to read 
in that way is critical for success in school and in fact for success outside school in, in their later life. You can't function without very well without proficient reading skills, even in the digital age. So research has shown us that uh, achieving this goal of fluent uh, reading uh, is a complex uh, process that takes time. It's a developmental process that actually um, requires linking students' abilities in different aspects of language, which I'll talk about more generally. So reading instruction really implicates language development in a very general way. And I'm going to talk about this in, a, in the few moments that I have. So what does, all, what does all of this mean? It means that learning to read fluently and accurately involves different aspects of uh, language, along with the development of proficiency in the oral aspects of those language skills. And this takes time. This is particularly true for second language learners, but it's true also for, for native speakers of the language. If students are uh, going to be able to read and comprehend complex texts in their math class, their science class, their geography class, they're going to have to have oral language skills that are equally complex and sophisticated. So reading instruction and language development need to go hand in hand. Now in the reading research, it's common uh, to talk about word reading and text reading. And, and researchers often make a distinction between these two components of reading instruction. They talk a lot about how they're interrelated. Uh, and in fact, in the early days of reading research, there was a lot of focus on learning to read words or decode words. Um, and um, people found that being able to decode was an important aspect of learning to read. But it was not enough that students could, could decode words or read words in isolation. And this is fairly evident, I think, to most practitioners, but it's also evident from a lot of research that children can read words or they can read text quite accurately, but they're not necessarily able to understand what they're reading so that they can, uh, they can read what they're faced with. And it sounds quite good, but if you ask them questions about what they've read or what it means or what the inferences are that can be drawn from it, they have difficulty with it. So researchers have come to realize that in the long run, uh, an emphasis needs to be put on teaching reading for comprehension. So that means reading uh, teaching reading so that students understand sentence length or text length material in a way that's not only fluent and accurate, but that makes sense so that they can actually learn from what they're reading. So there's a distinction that's often made between learning to read and reading to learn. And this is where comprehension is critical and where meaning is critical. Our goal at all stages of reading instruction should be with the focus on preparing these students to read material in a, in a way that's comprehensible and makes sense to them and to their teachers. Um, uh, but it's also evident from research that when it comes to reading comprehension, that uh, the ability to comprehend text is really critically dependent upon students' language development, their level of language proficiency. Students need to know fairly comprehensive and fairly uh, sophisticated words to map on to what they're reading. They also need to know uh, how words are formed and how words function in text. And they also need uh, sentence level skills, grammar and, and cohesion and so on. Um, in order to uh, provide the language skills students need in order to really develop a, 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 
good compre reading comprehension skills, you really need to make reading instruction part of a more general reading development program so that every stage of instruction, teachers are embedding their uh, language instruction, their reading instruction with the, with the goal of expanding not only students' reading skills, but also their language skills. So for example, even when, uh, if you were teaching students to decode words, which is often what teachers focus on in the beginning, this should be done and can be done in a way that also drives language development. So it can be done, for example, by showing students that the same word, some of the words they're reading, can have different meanings and can function differently in a sentence. So the word, for example, like mess can be a noun. Uh, he made a mess, uh, can be a verb. He messed up his room, or it can be an adjective. He's messy. And this not only helps to expand the student's vocabulary uh, uh, knowledge, but it helps them decode words into new text which, and words which they may not already understand because they, if they see the root in the new word, they can relate that word to a word that they already know. Um, and, but it's also important that the, the, the language that and the language materials that teachers are using and the language activities that they're, learn, they're using are really relevant to the students and it's interesting to the students and it's engaging for the students. Because if, 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 they, if the materials that are being used, the activities that are being used are not interesting uh, and motivating for the students, they will not get engaged in learning to read. And it's critical that students have a high level of motivation to learn to read because it's actually quite a complex and time-consuming process. This is true for all students, but it's particularly true for second language learners, as I uh, point out in a moment. Um, so as teachers develop uh, their students' reading skills, they need to be thinking about how they can link the reading skills to the student's language development, but they also need to be thinking about how uh, the materials and activities they're engaged in are linked to the student's uh, instruction in other areas of the curriculum, but also to their lives in general. So they, can, they, for example, can bring in materials from the home to use for reading instruction. So in a nutshell, uh, we've learned that uh, learning to read is a complex process. It involves multiple aspects of language. Uh, reading development needs to occur in lockstep with language development more generally. And instruction in reading needs to be embedded in activities that are interesting, relevant, and engaging for students in order to maintain their motivation to, to learn to read. So you heard it here, folks. Uh, Dr. Genesee said, decoding is not enough. We have to make sure that it's about instruction for reading comprehension. Fred, would you talk to us about reading in home language and second language, similar and the differences between them? Sure. So there's uh, been also quite a bit of research on uh, learning to read in a second language. And again, I'm going to focus on English as a second language. And this research has been, a lot of this research has been done in North America, but there's also quite a bit of research that's been done internationally looking at reading acquisition in different kinds of second languages. But what I'm going to say really reflects what happens when students are learning to read in English as a second language. Now, what I just said about learning to read in a native language, and English as a native language, is to a large extent true for students who are learning to read in English as a second language. But it's also clear from research that there are important and significant differences between uh, learning to read in a second language and teaching students how to read in a second language. 
So one of those differences, which I've already alluded to, is that uh, English language learners, any student learning to read in a second language, uh, may have different sociocultural experiences, different personal experiences, uh, in comparison to students who are in the mainstream for whom textbooks and instructional guidelines are created. This is the, the kind of point that uh, Nancy just made in her anecdote, that these students may come to school uh, with a different set of understandings about the world, funds of knowledge, which don't map exactly onto mainstream students' sense of the world. Um, and as I said earlier, if, you, if your goal is to teach reading for comprehension, it's important that the activities you use and the instructional materials you use are relevant to the students. It's important that the students can relate to those materials. And if it, if it, if it does, as Nancy pointed out, you'll get much more engagement. You get much more interest in learning to read because they're learning to read about things that they understand and that are important to them. <clears throat> this is particularly true, I think, in the early stages of reading development um, because students uh, are, in a sense, there's a kind of a self-centeredness about learning. They, they get engaged when it's relevant to them personally. As students progress in school, then they're going to start to read, to learn. In other words, they can accommodate new knowledge, which may be beyond their immediate experiences. But the, in the early stages of reading development, and preferably throughout reading development, teachers should make the, the materials uh, and the activities they engage in as relevant and interesting to the students as possible. And often that means that they're going to be using materials and, and activities that are different from what would be appropriate for a mainstream student. Now, another important difference that differentiates learning to read in a second language from reading, learning to read in the first language uh, is that the students are learning to read in a language that they have not fully acquired. They're still learning the language. And as I indicated before, what this means is that uh, as teachers plan reading instruction, as they engage in reading instruction, they need to be constantly aware that they also need to be ensure that students have the language skills they need to comprehend what they're being asked to read. In many cases, this means that they really need to promote language development at the same time as they're promoting reading development. So even if you're teaching decoding skills, you can have students classify words according to how they relate to the environment or how they relate to science projects. So it's not just about um, uh, acquiring isolated words, but it's, uh, it's about developing and expanding their language skills above and beyond what would happen if you're, if you're not doing that. So reading development needs to be constantly uh, linked with language development with second language learners because they are still learning the language. Now, the third difference that I wanted to talk about, and this is a critical one, and we'll come back to this later on, it, that second language learners already know a language. They have a heritage language. And there's a lot of research that shows that students will use their knowledge of the heritage language to help them learn to read in a second language. So, for example, again, uh, if children are learning to uh, 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 reading in English, if they come across words or phrases that are similar to things they know in their first language, they're going to draw on that knowledge from the first language to interpret what they're reading. I mean, the most obvious example is in the, in the case of cognates. If students are uh, Spanish speakers or French speakers as a first language and they're reading English, they may come across a lot of 
technical terms, actually, that are cognates of Spanish and French because these are Latinate languages. Uh, it's useful that students realize that if words look alike, they may have the same meaning, and then they can use that process of comparison between the L1 and the L2 to understand the meaning of word, new words that they're reading, <clears throat> reading in text for the first time. But it can also be useful in uh, their understanding of uh, uh, text level uh, structures because the way text is organized is different. It's the same in some languages, but different in other respects. So teaching students these similarities and differences allows them to draw on knowledge of their first language. And teachers should encourage students to draw on their first language when they're trying to learn, when they're reading, uh, reading in a second language. I just want to end this piece by, by indicating that there's a lot of research that shows that there's very, very significant positive correlations between the children's abilities to read in their first language before they come to school and their ability to learn to read in the second language. So students who come to school and have some reading skills in the heritage language, they will acquire literacy skills in the second language more quickly uh, it, than students who lack those skills. So it's very important for, for, for teachers to understand what level of reading competence or reading awareness, literacy awareness, heritage language speakers have in their heritage language, because that will give them an indication of how far along this developmental stage the students are. So again, just to summarize, there are, there are three important differences that need to be taken into account when planning instruction uh, for second language readers. One is that they have different sociocultural and personal experiences. We should try to accommodate those. Uh, they um, they are learn still learning the language, oral language, that they're learning to read at the same time, and we need to promote both of these oral and written language competencies at the same time in lockstep. And finally, students will draw on their native language or heritage language in order to bootstrap themselves into the second language. And this is a very positive strategy. And shouldn't, so when students show indications that they're using the L1 or relying on it, this should be interpreted as a sign of resourcefulness, not as a sign of dependency. It should be strongly encouraged. Oh, Fred, that was like a keynote on reading instruction for ML. So thank you for that. Let's move to Nancy. Would you talk to us about the eight principles of emergent literacy instruction? Could you talk to us about a few of those and why they're so important? Sure, Todd, I'd be happy to do that. And I do want to start by mentioning that, as you could see, uh, Fred's very aware of all of the research, and he was one of the people that was on the National Literacy Panel for Language Minority Children and Youth that issued the report in 2006 of what we know about teaching reading and writing in a second language. And after that report was issued, which I think was like almost 400 pages of text, I was concerned because I've always been in the classroom working with teachers if I wasn't a teacher myself. And I was concerned how that information was gonna to get to teachers. And actually that was the impetus for the book that we wrote. And um, so in chapter two, um, you see that we, we really worked hard to bring the research to teachers in a way that would tell them the so what, so what the research says this, like what should I do? What should I do differently? And we started with the eight principles and I won't be able to talk about them all, but Fred's already brought up several of them that are important. And I do wanna say that I stay current. I know exactly what's being talked about now in the field about teaching, reading and writing, especially everything that's being said about structured literacy and the Scarborough rote model and, and on and on. 
And I want to say that chapter two really holds up. It holds up very well. And because the book has been out for some time now, many of you, many of the people listening probably have it. And I just really want to encourage you to go back and revisit chapter two. Not, not so much to impose it upon you, but it holds up and we need to be principled in our work with, with students. And we need to have our heads on straight as to what matters when we're working with second language readers. And so I'll mention just a few, and Fred has already covered the first one so well. It, that is everything we do with a second language reader has to be meaningful, interesting, uh, useful, um, engaging because we need them to interact with us. We need them to interact with English. And if, if what the text that we put in front of them is boring, rote, it doesn't mean anything to them. They don't understand what the characters are doing. How are they gonna do anything with that text? And it also has to be on level. Fred talked about it being a developmental process. I know that teachers are being told, let's say you have a, you're an eighth grade teacher and you're being told, oh, just read the eighth grade novel to the students, just read it to them. Well, if I'm a new arrival, you can read that eighth grade novel to me all day if you want to in English and I'm not gonna understand a word of it because I don't know the grammar. I don't know all the things Fred ticked off, the vocabulary, the grammar, the sentence structure. I can't possibly follow it in English. I don't know enough English yet. Read it to me in my native language. If, if there's a translation, I'm, I'm good to go. But read it in English, no. The text has to be within range. And Fred also mentioned the importance, and that's another one of our principles of oral language development. And we know James Britton thinking about native speakers says, literacy floats on a sea of talk. You cannot understand if every other word is a word that you don't know. So we have to be building that oral language and we have to be expanding kids' background knowledge and here I would use an example. Suppose I'm reading informational text on the Civil War and it's talking about Alabama and Tennessee. Well, if the kids don't know where those are or, or what, you know, what the Southern states were thinking, I've got to build all that in order for the text to make sense to them. They also, another principle is they have to have opportunities to read. And it's not just in school, it's also outside of school. What are they reading when they go home? Are they reading when they go home? And if it's not interesting, engaging, something they wanna know about, they're not gonna read outside of school. So I have to know my kids' interests and I have to build books, collections that really connect with who my learners are. And I also have to have different formats because some kids would listen to a book on tape. Some kids would listen to an audio book that's video, that's multimedia. You know, I all of that is really important, the opportunities for reading and writing. And then also we have to, connect with literacy at home, which means I have to know something about literacy at home. And teachers should never imagine that there's no literacy at home. There's totally literacy at home. And we just have to find out what kind of literacy it is. And remembering that storytelling is a form of literacy. Remember, remembering that there are, um, when when families look at photographs and we're looking at photographs of, of the grandmother and auntie so-and-so and I tell you a story, that's a literacy event. 
And so I need to know how is reading and writing being used in the home? In what language are they reading and writing? What are they reading and writing? Do they, when they go to church, are they reading and writing? When they're at the community center, are they reading and writing? I need to know about my kids' lives. I need to know about their families. I, and I need to support it. And I need to send home lots of bilingual books. I, there's no excuse for not having books in kids' native languages if we want to make sure that kids are reading and writing at home. So, all right, I jumped into what our principles mean, but we have eight principles and they all hold up. And it's so important to be principled in what we're doing. And as new things come along, I have to know, wait a minute, does that fit with my principles or does that not fit with my principles? And get rid of it. If it doesn't fit with the principles, if it isn't meaningful, if it's not connecting with your kids, it, it doesn't belong in your library. Um, I feel like your principles that you're talking about are the guiding light that are forever green in our field. Like everything you just listed is like, yes, this is, it's not a fad, it's principles that hold out throughout time for reading. It's fantastic. Let's move to Dr. Hamayan. Would you tell us about um, currently decoding books are being promoted to work on bottom-up skills in text, like phonics and sight words. What are some problems you see with decodable text for multilingual learners? Um, Tam, you just moved right into, slid into uh, when you mentioned the, the question of principles being long-lasting and fads come and go. I was hoping that the fad of decodable books would go away, but apparently it still hasn't. And really the most significant problem with decodable books is that when, when you write a text with the primary and sometimes with the only purpose being to control the use of a very small aspect of language, like a phoneme or a grammatical form, you sacrifice the meaningfulness of the text and also how interesting it might be to the reader. And both Nancy and, and Fred have, have uh, pointed that out. Um, already. Um, and the problem is that decodable books are usually used for children who are just beginning to make sense out of the written language. Uh, so really, they're not suitable for emergent literacy for any child because they're so devoid of meaning. Um, English proficient students, especially those coming from the culture and the context represented in these books, maybe they can decode words and and, and make some sense of the nonsense that is written and begin to read that way. Um, but really, multi-language um, learners are likely to be at such a loss as to what the heck is going on in these books that reading becomes a huge burden and also uninteresting and not likely to be a satisfying task. So um, I... I, I went through this as a, as a mother. Um, my daughter was uh, all of a sudden brought, brought home a book that said, Bob at bat. And of course, the bat was referring to the baseball bat, which baseball, I knew nothing about baseball. And this was in the US. Um, and um, Ludmila, my daughter, of course, didn't know anything about baseball either. And for her, a bat was the more interesting bat was the kind that flew around at night. And how interesting that would have been. <laughs> um, and so we struggled through Bob at bat, Bob pants, Bob sat, Bob laughed, Bob. And it was to, to, to teach the ah sound. Now, 
and, and really you have to wonder how important is the ah uh, sound? If, what if some, what if a Spanish speaker, for example, says Bob Bats, the ah uh, sound that's more common, what difference does it make? So it was a huge struggle and I, 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 I blame the fact that at least until the age of 14 or so, my daughter was totally uninterested in reading. I blame it on Bob at best. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I also think you, you could you could teach some of these very small units, but you could do it in a meaningful way yeah. that yeah. expands their language. So you could say, for example, if students are interested in animals and insects, how many uh, insects can you think of where the name starts with the asa? Yeah. So yeah. You're not teaching the asa, but you're you're linking it to a larger concept about right. animal. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you know, it, it, what a weird subliminal message about literacy are we sending to these kids? And uh, so this is something we highlight in our book. And in fact, in chapter five, we list a few criteria for um, activities that connect reading and writing and suggest that if we can't answer the question, and this is going back to what Nancy was just pointing out about using the principles, and you also, Tam. Um, if, if we can't answer the question, why am I doing this activity in a way that makes sense to the student, then maybe, as Nancy said, it's better to just let that, that activity go. And you know, as Fred has often pointed out, uh, multi-language learners do not struggle with phonics. To the contrary, there's evidence that they outperform native speakers. Right. This is well established. So there's no need for second language to focus on something that they can do as well, or maybe sometimes better than children who are dealing with phonics in their native language. So it's not so much the ability to decode based on phonics, but the fact that what's decoded in these decodable books is meaningless to multi-language learners, especially when the cultural context is unfamiliar. So guessing at meaning, which is something we all do when we're reading, uh, becomes futile and, it, and, and probably very frustrating, leading to the, in my book, the, the worst thing, which is an aversion to reading. And that's just absolutely horrible. And speaking of horrible, as Nancy points out, the books look horrible, <laughs> the artwork. And as Nancy says, if you can call it art. So why would we pick books like that to invite children into the wonderful world of literacy with so many beautifully illustrated, culturally responsive picture books, some of which are built around language patterns naturally as they occur in, in natural, naturally used authentic language. And so... Um, even more reason to use these interesting, beautiful books, because as Fred was just saying, it's not hard to build the five components of literacy or whatever you're focusing on in any age-appropriate and culturally appropriate text. I'll stop rating and ranting by just saying, if you have the choice, avoid using these horrible decodable books. And I know some of you teachers may not have the choice, and I'm so sorry. Um, especially for kids who are still developing proficiency in a new language and a new culture. Okay. I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> no, I'd love for you to be on your soapbox and keep going. So we need to stop having Bob at bat books, no more decoding, <laughs> please. And in the, like what, what Fred said, decoding is not enough. It's about meaning, which transitions us over to talking about dual language or bilingual books. Why are these so important? multi-language students. 
you know, I, I love bilingual books for all sorts of reasons. Um, even though when they first started coming out, there was a lot of anxiety about um, giving students access to the content in bilingual books in a language that they can read because we thought, well, maybe that's going to stop them or, or uh, that they'll spend less time on the language that they need to be developing more. Uh, but bilingual books give us a rich resource of so many tools to becoming and being bilingual, which is one of the primary goals for our students, right? Um, so uh, let, let me start with what most educators leave to the last, because it's not on the test, because it's not an important part of the curriculum, although I think it's one of the noble aspects of being bilingual, um, and that's the bicultural perspective that our students have access to just by having the two or more worlds that they live in either just at school or at home as well at school. Um, some bilingual books are bicultural when they deal with issues and events uh, that happen typically in a multilingual community. And other bilingual books are based on a more monolingual context. Um, I'm sorry, monocultural context. Um, so, but we can delve into aspects of living in two or more worlds, two or more cultures that obviously overlap tremendously um, with different norms and values that also overlap to some extent. And we can do this even at a very early age. You know, children are very sophisticated in what they notice and what they observe. Um, if, there's, if there's time, I think we'll be talking a little bit later about multicultural books so we can we'll, we'll have a chance maybe to, to develop this idea a little more. Um, another maybe also esoteric advantage of bilingual books is that they scream, hey, we live in a bilingual world. How wonderful is that? How natural is that? Um, and I have to tell you, this is one of the things I miss in Argentina because in the US, everything is just so rich with multiculturalism and here it tends to be much more monocultural, monolingual. Um, so here are books that represent the bilingual world that I live in as a, as a learner. And so for those of you uh, in the US who have native English speakers in dual language programs, their bilingual world may exist primarily in school, but even for them, bilingual books are an important part of their development as bilingual. And then of course, there are the linguistic advantages of bilingual books. They're great for making cross-linguistic connections that Fred was talking about. Um, and those can be made at different levels and different areas of language. In, in phonology, for example, we could look at similarities and differences between the sound uh, that are attached to letters or sounds that exist only in one language but not the other. At the morphological level, for example, we could look at similarities and differences. Um, as Fred mentioned, true and false cognates at gender, whether there's a distinction between masculine and feminine and what that might, what implications that might have. Um, we can look at aspects of language that exist in one language but not the other. At the semantic level, we can look at uh, idioms and how they're used into languages. And, in, and you can take it all the way up to a very sophisticated level where you're looking or you're analyzing at, at stylistic discourse characteristics of the two languages. So all of these exercises are conducive uh, to developing um, an awareness of how language functions and the ability to balance and even play with two languages. Not a bad set of skills to have. One more set of uh, strength of bilingual books, and I think this is something um, I can't remember, either Fred, either Fred or Nancy, I think, alluded to this. 
if you can send them home, um, they are a blessing for parents who are not proficient in one of the languages of instruction. They can reinforce, the parents can get involved in activities that their children are doing at, at school much more effectively. Um, in chapter three, we list some additional activities to do with bilingual books, like uh, preparing students to learn, for students to do a self-assessment. Assessment. So there's more information in the book about this. Oh, I love that. I, I imagined if, well, when I grew up, I didn't live in a bilingual, I didn't go to a bilingual school. It wasn't dual language. It wasn't English and Vietnamese. It was only Vietnamese. And my mom just said, go to school, learn. I can't help you, right? But imagine if she, if I came home with like, mom, I have a book in English and Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. And imagine how she would be more involved in the book and how she would feel more welcomed in that school as well. Yeah, yeah. Huh. absolutely. Let's move to Nancy. Can we talk to us about how can teachers prepare multi-language learners to read and comprehend informational texts? Yes, I'd be happy to, Tan. So I was thinking about how to answer this question. And I was, I wanted to start by saying uh, a, a paradigm that teachers use often when they're working with multilingual learners is what to do before they read, what to do as they read, and what to do after they read. So I thought that I would follow that in my, in my comments. And before they read, one of the things that we know is very useful to multilingual learners is to set a purpose for reading. Tell them, why are you reading this? What are we looking for? What are we trying to find out while we read this? And Nancy Motley in her talk, Read, Talk, Write, talks about this as pay attention to. What should I be paying attention to? And if we just start reading with kids, sometimes we get to the end and then we ask the questions and we say, weren't you paying attention? And they were, but they, they did, it was too global. They didn't really know what we were after. So why don't we just reveal that to them as we start? Not only that, I already talked about selecting a text that's within range. We have to find texts within range. I want them to stretch. I Let me tell you, I was a tough teacher and I pushed kids hard. But it had to be within range. It had to, they had to have a prayer of understanding what was in the book and having the support features so they could understand. And then I have to study the text. Me personally, I got to study it. Like what is the background that's expected of this text? And do my kids have it? And I already used the example of the Civil War. They don't know where Tennessee is, and the whole story is about Tennessee and Southern soldiers in the Civil War, what are they going to understand? They don't, they, don't even, they don't understand any of it. And then there's the linguistic analysis that I have to do to see the demands of my text clearly so that I know what the kid is up against when they're going to be reading the text or trying to process the text. And then I can do things like a chapter walk. I can do things like um, uh, framing the text with an outline. First, we're going to read this, then we're going to read this, then we're going to find out this, then we're going to find out that. And it's a map of sorts so that they see where we're going. As we're reading, I can use a graphic organizer. These are so useful to multilingual learners, but it's got to match the text structure, which means me, teacher, I need to know what the text structure is. So if it should be sequential, what happened first? What happened second? What happened third in the Civil War? Or I use a fishbone, what was happening in the North while such and such was happening in the South? And we're we're outlining that and, we're, and it's a timeline, but it's a fishbone timeline because it's two environments at the same time that I'm trying to keep track of. If we chunk the text and kids take notes, they're gonna understand when we get to the end and when I ask them questions. 
And then also after we read, what about checking in native language? They read it in English. But if I could check in the native language, I'd really find out what they got because I don't want English to be the barrier for me to understand what did they comprehend and what did they not comprehend. But if I can't use the native language, I don't know Bengali. You know, I'm I, I'm not going to be able to uh, to do what you could do, Thai. I don't know Tan. I I don't know Vietnamese. I don't know Thai. So. I have to be able to ask my question in such a way that I can really get it. Did they understand or did they not understand? And, I sh and I'm not gonna say to them, did you understand? Because they're all going to say yes. And so I have to have my way of finding out. And I also can use that text, select a page, select a paragraph as mentor text. So I can teach them something about how social studies text works. And social studies tends to have long, complicated 35 word sentences with lots of introductory and embedded clauses. Well, why don't I unpack a sentence together with them and show them how it works? Why don't we work on the verb tenses that are common, the passive voice that happens often in social studies texts? And these are called registers, as many of the listeners know. Well, I have to help them. I have to start helping them with social studies register. And I also have to help them with generic or general academic vocabulary. And Dee Gardner has given us the academic vocabulary list. And what about that? What about teaching them words like study? That, that has nothing to do with the Civil War, but in, in every class, I'm gonna to say, today we're gonna to study, now we're gonna study, let's study. And also I could have a word like discuss, let's discuss, or I could have a word like group. How were things, what groups existed in the South? What groups existed in the North? Or how are we gonna group our fractions? Or how are we gonna group our acids and bases? Which which of our chemicals are acids and which should we group as bases? So a word like that, it's coming up across all the subjects and who's teaching it? Maybe nobody, because some teachers think they just have to teach all the words of the Civil War. But no, there's also this academic, generic academic vocabulary, I'm gonna call it, or cross-curricular academic vocabulary that has to be taught as well. And of course, it's not just vocabulary, as I tried to point out, it's also, as, and as Fred pointed out, it's grammatical things, it's verb tenses, regular and irregular in English. So much to work on. So, but if I do it in the before, in the during, and the after, I can ensure I can make absolute, absolutely certain that my kids are not only going to read successfully, but also comprehend their informational text. And that's the kind of thing we have in chapter four. There's a lot more there, but we try to say, you know, it's not a mystery. It's no mystery. We know exactly what to do. We just have to do it. Yeah, you said you basically said don't assume, don't assign. We must teach explicitly how to teach informational text. And you said something about stretching, and I, I want to add to that. Um, we want to stretch students' skills, not snap their spirits. And so we want to make sure that it's right at their level, but not beyond, or that's going to snap their spirits. Let's move to Fred. Question. Um, Let's move to Fred. Can you talk to us about home language in bootstrapping into English literacy? Sure. And we've talked about this uh, quite a bit already, but I'll just add a couple of points. Um, and, and this is going to come from uh, a lot of recent brain research. There's been a huge interest recently among neurocognitive uh, scientists 
about how the languages of bilinguals or multilinguals are represented in the brain and how they're processed when people are reading or speaking or whatever. And there's very compelling evidence that uh, even when bilinguals are using one language, the other language is actually activated. Now, this is not a conscious process. Bilinguals are not necessarily aware of this, but recording of the neurons in bilinguals' brains shows that even when bilinguals are, say, uh, doing something with uh, English, the uh, Spanish equivalent or the French equivalent of the brain is actually active at the same time. Uh, we also know, for example, uh, when, I'll give you another example of how this is evident, is that when children code mix, when they mix two languages in the same sentence, they 95% of the time they do it in a way that avoids making grammatical errors in either, in either language. They don't make errors when they code mix if you ignore the language part and just look at the grammar part. Now, in order to do this, this means that the bilinguals are activating both languages at the same time, and there's some kind of a comparison going on in their brains that tells them they can code mix here in the sentence, but they can't code mix here because if they code mix there, they're going to they're going to violate one of the grammatical constraints of either of their languages. So the point is that as teachers, we need to take this kind of research seriously. And what it tells us is that even though we might be focusing on one language, the learners themselves are act in their brains are activating the other languages. So they're making these cross-linguistic comparisons. So uh, as we know from reading research, that if we capitalize on these connections that are being made neurocognitively, we can drive uh, uh, reading development even more because we're, we're, we're make, taking advantage of the resources they have in their other language, even though this might be unconscious. And um, this is a neurocognitive fact. It's not speculation. It's not just uh, extolling the virtues of bilingualism. This is actually a neurocognitive fact that's well recognized. The other point I wanted to make, and this sort of alludes to some of the points that Elsie has made and Nancy as well, is that if you're, uh, if you're making connections between uh, bilingual languages, in whatever way, when, you're, when they're reading, when they're talking with one another, you're also affirming their identity as bilinguals. And the best way to get students to feel welcome at school and to want to learn at school is to make them feel at home at school. Uh, one of my colleagues at McGill uh, many, many years ago coined the expression, expression additive bilingualism. And he pointed out that when learners are in an additive bilingual environment, then they, they learn better. And an additive bilingual environment is an environment where students uh, are, are encouraged to learn a second language and they willingly acquire a second language because it doesn't mean they have to give up their first language. So bilingualism becomes an additive process. Too often students who come to school, heritage language speakers who come to school, they are expected to learn the dominant societal language but it's, it's supposed to be done at the expense of the heritage language. So there's a, a, there's a subtractive form of bilingualism here because as proficiency in the dominant language goes up, proficiency in the heritage language goes down. And what research shows is that learners in school programs which emphasize the subtractive form of bilingualism are much less successful than programs that encourage bilingual development. And a big part of that, I think, is not only because of the neurocognitive facts that I shared with you, but because uh, social, psychologically, motivationally, students feel that they're not giving up something in order to acquire the dominant language.
So I think the, the, those are two fairly distinct reasons why uh, encouraging cross-linguistic uh, effects or uh, learning strategies in bilinguals is highly recommended. You just basically talked about this is why dual language is so important, dual language programs are so important because it's about adding students' language um, to the new one, to a new one they already have, to a one that's already existing. Right. Let's move to Elsie. Why is multicultural literature important when teaching literacy to MLs? Um, well, multicultural learners, um, I think, are in an extraordinary, enriched kind of environment where they first discover that there are different ways of saying things, there's different ways of doing things. And as a result, I think uh, we're constantly juggling the two or more worlds that are constantly interacting with one another and changing each other. And so to see these enriched worlds and this, this experience reflected and portrayed in books uh, confirms, as Fred was saying, who multilanguage learners are and, and, and their identities. Um, so seeing your own cultures represented in beautiful, well-written books affirms who we are. Uh, learning about cultures other than the ones that we are or the ones that we were raised in is an incredibly enriching experience because it expands our perspective and our perceptions. And doing that through good literature that you read and talk about can leave an indelible mark on who you are, but it, it, it's also expanding your reading um, skills and your interest in reading. Um, and and when, I, when I say this, actually, I'm not thinking just about our students, but as teachers as well, um, the you know, multicultural literature, there's some great, great books out there. And in the last decade, there's been a, an abundance of books by multicultural authors. So it, it, there's a lot out there to choose from. Um, the beauty with multicultural literature is that it lends itself to some neat lessons that focus on language issues, and many of we've given some examples already, but it also allows us to focus on cultural issues, because language is used to express cultural concepts. Um, and so when I was talking about developing uh, metalinguistic awareness, the aware awareness of language by reflecting on our languages through the use of bilingual books, the same can be said of developing metacultural awareness, awareness of culture and what it means uh, by reflecting on different cultural uh, perspectives and approaches to, to life. Um, how to use multicultural books? One suggestion is to read stories using the same theme across cultures. Uh, what is unique? How do they differ? How do you do it? Uh, you can focus on specific language aspects, of course, as well. Um, and I think what's important for us to, to have in the back of our minds is to make sure that we're dealing with what people have called surface culture as well as deep culture values and how they differ or are similar across cultures. And so by guiding students, even very young ones, in discussions on surface and deep cultural values, uh, we're, we're helping make them into multiculturally sophisticated individuals. Um, but just one thing that I forgot to mention when we were talking about bilingual books, just because a book is multicultural or just because a book is bilingual does not make it a great book, does not necessarily make it a high quality book. So one of the things that we have to do as teachers is to 
evaluate the, the quality of books be, 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 before we jump into them. And so um, in one of the appendices of our book, I think it's the first appendix, we have a checklist for evaluating the quality of books in languages other than English. But I think it would also be useful for uh, making some uh, assessments of bilingual and multicultural books. So right. We have to evaluate the quality of books. Just because they're bilingual doesn't mean that they're suitable. And I love your strategy of saying like, uh, take, uh, read multiple books uh, uh, that, that follow a, th a theme, like, oh, fairy tales, but fairy tales in multiple cultures. And so now t students have, uh, teachers have multiple opportunities to have students represented in their uh, classes. Can I just add a point to Elsie, though, um, uh, with the multicultural books, because you were talking about them. They have to be good books. And I just want to bring up the issue of translations mm -hmm. as it relates to um, multicultural books, because if I translate um, The Hungry Caterpillar, it doesn't make it a multicultural story just because I've written it in Spanish. And so it's really important for teachers to avoid mere translations and think that now they've, they've, they've gotten a story in the language that they're looking for. It has to emanate from the culture. It has to be authentic to the culture. And so one of the criteria for selecting multicultural books is authenticity and, um, and at a surface and a deep culture level. Yeah. So absolutely. no translating a book over it that doesn't make it multicultural. I can't believe if or like a good good night moon. If someone would translate it over into Spanish, you would lose that. Um... Or, or just naming the character Javier. It, it doesn't make the book multicultural because now it's a, a story about Maria and Javier. You know, it has to be authentic. It's kind of like where we say in the field, like let let's not just do flags and festivals. Let's actually integrate it into students' right. experiences. Now, so let's continue talking about what do teachers need to know about their MLs to teach reading and writing well? So um, here I would want to talk about the TESOL six principles of exemplary teaching of English learners, because what they put at the center of the six principles for teaching English learners, uh, exemplary teaching of English learners is know your learner. And we've already said everything that I'm about to say, but I'm just gonna tick it off in terms of a list. First off, you have to know what your learner brings, which that means what languages do they know? It might even be more than one language that they're bringing prior to English. Many of our kids are trilingual, quadrilingual, before we ever see them and before they start learning English. And we need to know every language that they know. We need to know how literate they are in those languages and not imagine that they're not literate. We also need to know their prior literacy um, development, like their amount of prior schooling that they've had. At what age did they start school? Are they on grade level in their primary or home language? We need to know all of that. We need to know their cultural background or backgrounds. Maybe dad is Ecuadorian and mom is Guatemalan. Well, we need to know that. That means there's multiple cultures represented within their family. So um, it's not enough to know, oh yeah, he's one of my Spanish speakers. I need to know a lot more than that. And I also don't accept excuses as to finding out about the literacy level in the home language, because I think there are a lot of ways that we can find out about the home language literacy level. Um, and, and there are 
actual assessments in the high incidence languages, but also just by asking, by finding a book in the child's home language and asking them to read in front of us, we can detect a lot, like fine, we don't understand it, but we can see how they approach the book. We can see how, how fluently they seem to be reading the book and so forth. I need to know something about their literacy level. And I also can have conversations with their family. So, um, and final thing I would point out, we need to know their status in the country. Are they a language minority student born in this country? Are they an, uh, as American as, as me? Uh, are they um, uh, an asylum seeker? Are they a refugee? Are they an immigrant? Are they a migrant? Where have they been? Where have they been before I got them? How, how many school systems have they been in? And so I need to know all of that to teach them well. And some you can't learn some of it overnight, but I need to be seeking that information actively um, because I can absolutely not teach a kid well if I don't know all of that information. It's my obligation as their teacher to find out everything I can about their background so that I can make use of it. I also need to know about their literacy environment in the home and in the community. So all of that is absolutely necessary. I just love the strategy you just, you just gave of saying, oh, have the student read the, a text in their heritage language, and then you can see, are they pausing at commas? Are they using, um, are they, um, using uh, annotation as they read? That's just really great. I never thought about that. And I was like, yes, you could really see the literacy level in students' heritage languages. But this is the penultimate question. Sorry, Nancy, you want to say something? Well, I was going to talk about Jim Cummins' work on, on the, uh, the books that he was doing bilingually where they have the kids writing in English, but when they're new to English, they're not writing very much. But if on the a face page, they're able to talk more about their story in their native language, again, I, I don't know Vietnamese, so I can't read it, but I can see how much they're writing. I can see how they're punctuating. I can go to a site like Omni, Omniglot. I can see what Vietnamese look like, what it's supposed to look like. And I can and I can see if other Vietnamese speakers and readers are making use of the book. So whether it's reading or writing, I, I can find out something. I totally can. And when we find something about them, we see their assets and what they can do and not what they can't. Freck, would you, would you tell us about uh, if there are any disadvantages or negative effects of teaching MLs to read in two languages? No, I can't, I frankly can't think of any um, because, you know, being bilingual, even just in the oral language, opens up all sorts of uh, channels of communication. It means that you can interact and communicate with more people because you know two or more languages. Well, that's certainly true uh, when it comes to biliteracy. Being biliterate opens up worlds of information which you would not have access to if you were literate in only one language. And with the in, in, internet at, at our disposal, being able to read in uh, not only English, but other languages means you have that many more sources of information that you can access. Uh, clearly English is a, is a dominant language on the internet, but it is not the only language on the internet. And there are, there are world languages like Spanish, which have vast sources of information available in Spanish if you know the language. So being biliterate in more than one language means that you have more sources of information and interaction, both e for either professional reasons, but also for personal reasons. 
And I, I'll just add a, a sort of more uh, economical point of view on all this, that, you know, we've heard a lot about the advantages of bilingualism from a cognitive and per, a personal point of view, but there is some interesting research that shows that uh, in terms of the, uh, 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 the professional workplace, uh, uh, bilinguals have advantages over monolinguals because they are bilingual. And uh, internationally, employers are looking for people who not only know English, but they know other languages. But it's interesting that there are economic advantages that are derived from, from having these bilingual skills in the workplace. But the most significant advantages from a strictly economic point of view are, are go to people who are not only uh, bi bilingual, but biliterate. So the real advantage in the workforce which this makes sense in the workforce is if you not only know another language or other languages, but you can read and write in those languages because people in the international uh, workplace are looking for people who can communicate in multiple languages. And that means not only being able to speak the language, but being able to read and write in it. So from a strictly mercenary point of view, that's a huge advantage because a lot of our students are going to be graduating into a world which is really international in scope and to speak English a big advantage internationally, but speaking only English is not as much an advantage as speaking English in another language. Uh, there's just, I'm, I'm very grateful that I am a, a multilingual person after I'm just hearing what you shared. Um, let's do the actual, the last question. This is the final comment, the closing comment. Um, and each of you, I would like to just have you say something very, very brief, a final comment. Oprah has something called, um, this I know for sure. After the decades of work that you have done and contributed to our field, what do you know for sure about working with multilingual students? I'll have Nancy go, then Fred, and then we'll finish with Elsie. Well, well, what I know for sure is that it's the most wonderful career you could ever have is to work with English language learners. I have enjoyed every single day of my professional life because of the kids and families that I get to interact with. And so all I can say to any of you that are new to the world of multilingual learners is you're going to have the most wonderful experience. The kids in front of you are, are absolutely wonderful and have so much, you're gonna learn so much and you're gonna benefit so much just because you get to know them. What I would have to say, which I know for sure, and I tell people often, is that uh, we now know that becoming bilingual and uh, biliterate to a very high level of proficiency is within the capacity of all students, basically. And that if there's any shortcomings in this, it's not on the part of the learners. They can do it. Uh, it's really whether the adults who create the learning environments uh, for learners can do it. And too often adults underestimate what children can do. And it's very clear from a wealth of research now on, on bilinguals, not just reading and writing, but oral language development, that um, it's within the capacity of all, of all learners, even learners who might have a language learning difficulty. They can be as bilingual in two languages as monolinguals are in one language, even though they might have a, a language learning difficulty. So what's, what's clear is that children can do it. They have the capacity to do it. And we just have to make it possible for them. We have to create the environment for them to express that capacity to a fullest extent. Um, wow, what's left to say? Um, I, I see working with multilingual, multicultural students as having an added value 
um, of working with a group of students um, who are learning in a linguistically and culturally in enriched environment. And, and so despite the complexity that comes from working with a diverse population of, of learners, as Nancy said, it's an extremely enriching experience for us teachers, researchers, um, and so have fun. <laughs> what a great way to end. I, this I know for sure that teachers will go and run to buy this book because this hour has only been about reading and then we haven't covered the rest of your book how practical this conversation has been. It, I felt like I've been on the panel of panel, like the keynote panel of a conference. And so it has been an honor to host you. And I uh, thank you for just affirming our work, our work, our students, and I could see the passions in your hearts for our students. Thank you, Tom. Yes, thank you for organizing this. I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. Now onto our recap. To summarize, here's a list of things to do when teaching MLs read. Focus on comprehension of text, not just the ability to decode the words. Connect the content to students' background knowledge. Make sure that it's an engaging topic to read. Read dual language books if possible, and if not, read multicultural books. Once again, this was just one chapter of the book. If you enjoyed this conversation and learned a lot, you will love their book where they'll talk about speaking and writing as well. I've linked that book in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. 